Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is a professor at Rutgers University, Newark, and an award-winning journalist. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Lacey Schwartz is a woman whose personal journey of race and religion has won attention across the country. She was raised as a white Jewish girl in upscale Woodstock, New York, only to learn, after entering Georgetown University, that her biological father was black. She tells that story in a documentary that she produced, directed, and wrote called Little White Lie. Lacey, welcome. Hi, how are you? Why'd you do this documentary? Why'd you produce it? You know, I started making this film in my mid-20s when I was living in what I consider to be a racial closet. I was out in the world identifying as being black, but I was still going home to my white Jewish family and identifying as white. And I realized at that point that I was really wanted to integrate my identities internally. You know, we talk so much, I think, in society about the issue of segregation and how people don't come together. But I think so many of us are struggling internally to integrate those identities ourselves. And so for me, I really wanted to go through that process. I didn't want to live in this place of compartmentalizing my identities forever. And so I realized, though, that in order to do that, I was going to have to uncover my family's secrets. It was impossible for me to fully integrate my identities until I uncovered my family's secrets. And I decided to do a film documenting that process. Painful process. Painful, but I think also really healing really healing at the same time. I think processes can be difficult, but incredibly worthwhile. Well, your father didn't know that you were not his biological daughter until well after they, well, oh, it seems like um, 10 years after they were married, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing with my story is one of the big themes in it is denial and this incredible power of denial. Uh, one of the things I wanted to look at when making the film is what I consider to be the anatomy of denial. You know, how do people, can people kind of really create their own reality, believe what they want to believe? And I think everybody in the story, including myself, even though it was very much learned behavior, had their own timeline of denial. And the way I break up denial is into three phases. One is there's kind of this first stage where first and foremost you lie to yourself before you lie to other people. The se- and you when really, did you start lying to yourself? I think, you know, again, even though it was, as I said before, it was learned behavior, I think that for a long time I denied what I didn't want to be the case. You know, I was I believed, thinking about you in nursery school when some kid wanted to take a look at your gums. Yeah, exactly. And so I really think for me, I was in that first stage of denial up until the age of 16 when my parents broke up. And then at that point, the second stage to me is the stage where deep down, you know the truth, but you're not ready to admit it to yourself yet. And for me, that was from the time I was 16 until after my freshman year of college when I came home and asked my mother the truth. And then the third stage is when you know the truth, you're admitting it to yourself, but you're not necessarily talking about it with everybody else, especially in your family. And that's, to me, the crux of family secrets, which are things that everybody knows but nobody talks about. You know, obviously, these are loose definitions, but I think that these kind of phases hold fairly true in a lot of people's lives and this incredible power of denial. So I think myself, you know, and again, everybody had their own timeline, and obviously different people held different responsibility within this story, but I think that we all had a level of that denial, including my mother and my father. But you were dealing with it 
all through elementary school, all through high school. Uh, what was that like? I mean, you, you, you dated a young man named Matt who is also biracial, and he kept asking you, who are you? Who are you, Lacey? Yeah, I think at times it was incredibly confusing, incredibly frustrating. Uh, it was, you know, it was mixed. I did grow up in a loving, supportive family uh, where I had did experience a lot of privileges. And so I do try to acknowledge that. And a quite, quite Jewish and yes, and Jewish, and in a, you know, in a loving, supportive family where we did have a very strong, positive connection to Judaism, which I still maintain to this day. Uh, so, you know, it was difficult, and I think for a lot of people growing up and not knowing exactly who you are or why, or not having things talked about in an honest and open way, can be really hard and fairly intense. When you tell your story, how do you do that? In, in what way do you mean? I mean, people are, I'm sure, asking you because it's been publicized everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you've been in so many newspapers, on radio and television, and people looking at you, and they want to ask all these questions, but they're not sure what your story is. What do you tell them? You know... What is your story? What is... You know, for me, in terms of the process of telling my story or dealing with my story, the difficult piece was with my family. You know, that was the hard part. That was where all my anxiety laid. It, it's not talking about it publicly now. I've gone through this process, um, and I'm in a really good place. You know, I, I carried a lot of anxiety around before when I wasn't talking to my family openly, when we weren't able to kind of process this together, even though it was difficult. And now that we have and putting it out in this film, for me, the difficult part is over, and I really want the film to be used as a tool for other people to connect into it and be able to use it to help them with their process of having difficult conversations and dealing with their, quote-unquote, little white lies. Biracial families no longer anything that people talk about. I mean, the, the mayor of New York is married to a black woman. He's a biracial family. The, um, the president of the United States, Barack Obama, has had a white mother and a white grandfather. So people are more accepting, I would think. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think my story, people relate to it, not just people who are biracial, but people who have all different kinds of issues with identity, who have dealt with family secrets. You know, the film is very much about dual identity, but dual identities can mean a lot of different things. You know, we have a site where we've been asking other people to share their little white lies, and it's amazing the different stories that people share and how they connect into the the concept. And it's certainly not just about being biracial. That being said, just because um, in some places being biracial is not um, anything different any longer, it doesn't mean that people aren't still struggling to figure out where they fit or how to connect into those identities. And you weren't really sure uh, whether you were white or black or anything until you applied uh, for Georgetown University. Yeah, I mean, I think I wasn't really sure until I actually sat down with my mother and had the conversation with her. But when you when it was time to check out those boxes that every college gives out, asking for racial and um, religious identity, you left them all blank. Mm -hmm. Why? I mean, at that time, again, for me, as going back to, as I said before, that like second stage of denial, which really started for me when my parents split up and I started questioning where I came from. It just wasn't adding up anymore. At the same time, as you referenced before, I had a boyfriend in high school who really started putting a lot of these questions right in front of my face. And then the combination of those two things and staring at a college application and thinking, should, why, you know, I'm questioning my whiteness. And so the idea of checking white seemed like it didn't fit at that time. At the same time, I didn't have anything else to check. 
University, though, the university, however, um, sent your picture out. The next thing you know, you were being perceived as black. Yeah, they admitted me as a black student. How was that? I mean, how'd you feel about that? You know, at the time, I think that I was really putting myself out there in a sense, I was curious how other people were going to define me more than I was kind of, you know, I think some people could look at that and say, like, why weren't you self-righteous about it? Why wouldn't you protest it? I was in a place where I was really starting to question things. And I was at the same time preparing to leave this bubble that I'd grown up with, which is, you know, really this kind of white liberal bubble where people weren't really talking about race. So to go out into the space where somebody else was defining me in a certain way, I was kind of going for the ride at the time. I mean, obviously it didn't last forever. I came... You came home. I came home, and I was I was ready to talk to my mom about it, finally. When it finally got to the point that I had to be honest with myself, I couldn't deny it, I would say, Robert is her father. Robert is her father. Robert is the person that raised her. Robert is the person that was there with her every day. Robert is the person that is at school functions. Robert is her father. So why did you stay with Daddy? The reason was I had an extremely sexual relationship with Rodney, but there were things missing. The fact is that Daddy was interesting, Daddy was funny, Daddy was a person who made a decent amount of money. That's the reason I stayed with Daddy. At the time, she tried to avoid the conversation. Uh, She tried to, you know, she definitely talks about in the film, she was... She, you know, I was pushing at her and she was kind of resisting it, trying to avoid giving me straight answers. You think it might have been different if you'd had a sibling? You were an only child. Yeah, I mean, I would have to imagine. I would imagine so. You know, it's interesting. People ask me about hypotheticals all the time. And it's almost something I really resist because there's a million different things that would have made it different. But for me... It's really about accepting my story for what it was, you know, not thinking it could have been this way, it should have been this way. It is what it is, and and being okay with that, just having to step forward and deal with it in the best way that I can. White and Jewish, a couple of things to deal with. (laughs) A bat mitzvah, of all things, uh, that's not exactly the kind of thing that you uh, just dismiss or throw away. I mean, that's that's a real big deal, I would think. Having a bar mitzvah? Yeah, well, (laughs) if if you're not sure whether you're black or white, well, there are a lot of black Jews. Ethiopians, right? Didn't they think you were an Ethiopian at one point? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of diverse Jews out there of all different sorts of background. Now, growing up, I wasn't exposed to that, and I have, you know, educated myself about that since then, and it's been amazing to really educate myself about the full diversity of the Jewish people. You're listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org, and we're telling the story of Lacey Schwartz, a filmmaker who wrote, was busy, produced, and directed Little White Lie, a tale of growing up white and Jewish, only to learn while she was a student at Georgetown University that her biological father was black. The film was chosen as one of the projects of the 2015 Sundance Institute for a forward program that seeks to advance cultural dialogue. I've watched your... Uh, documentary, I think three or four times now, <laughs> the most compelling part was dealing with your father. He's looking at you and and he's, at the same time, he's concerned and uh, and he's hurt that he never knew that you were not his biological daughter. 
Why did you never talk to me about not being my biological father? About what? About not being my biological father. Why because did you never talk to me? Because it was mommy's business. I didn't have a clue, Lace. I would always tell people, oh yeah, my grandfather's Italian. Why Lacey looks like she does. And I believed it. I didn't tell you because I didn't know until you were age 16. Talk about betrayal. It's the ultimate. Cheat on your husband, okay, that's pretty bad. Don't tell him that you're having somebody else's child for 16 years, or forever for that matter. She still hasn't told me, but we all know. I'm mean, talking about the ultimate betrayal. Talk about the ultimate betrayal. Just think about that. Although it's clear all the way through the film, because you constantly call him daddy, mm -hmm. there's no doubt about who's the daddy. Yeah. It's him, but he was awfully, awfully, awfully pained from what I could see. Yeah, I mean, I think that going into this process, as you rightfully so, excuse me, rightfully said, the big thing for me was how do I talk to my father and this incredible fear of losing him. And I went into the Your father. There's no mistake about who your father is right. here. Yes, exactly. My father. I was really afraid of losing that relationship because I went into it wrongly so thinking that one of two things could happen. Either we were going to move forward kind of hand in hand exactly on the same page or we weren't going to have a relationship. And I think a large part of my own growth in the process of making this film was realizing that it can be much more nuanced. That for me to move forward, I didn't need him to be on exactly the same page as me. And that we both had to learn to accept each other, really for how we feel about the things that have happened, how we feel about each other. We don't have to be on the same page to have a nonetheless positive and connected relationship. And that's been incredible for me to realize over the course of making this film and having and and the entire process of having the conversations. He was hurt. He was hurt because he felt that um, he'd been betrayed. There was no question when he keeps calling you Lace that this was a man who was, just loved his daughter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was wondering how you feel about him right now after all this is over. As, as I just said, I feel um, I feel very thankful that he went through this process with me. As you said, it, I, as I say many times, I think that if it was up to him, he wouldn't have chosen to make a film, but he nonetheless participated in it with me. And so I'm very thankful to him for that. And I feel that be from us going through this process, we've learned to both accept how the other person feels and we very much still have a positive and strong relationship. For a long time, you didn't want to get married until uh, until you straighten everything out. What made you do that? What aside made from, me aside from the fact out? that you married someone who's a Rhodes Scholar who went to Oxford, <laughs> who also also was a hip hop hip hop guy. I mean, my goodness, you know, there's a lot of things going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think it is ironic, you know, right shortly after I had the conversations with my family is really. I mean, I had known my husband actually for a long time, but we hadn't been together, and we did connect At shortly Harvard? after. We met at Harvard, and then we went our separate ways for many years and then reconnected. But um, I don't think it's totally a coincidence that I really pushed myself to go through this process and deal with my stuff and then was really in a place to be able to connect with somebody on that level. And your stuff includes a man named Rodney Parker, mm -hmm. who I discovered, uh, oh, a few days ago, was quite a, quite a character in his own right. <laughs> Let's see, he was the subject of a book called Heaven is a Playground. <clears throat> 1974 by Rick Talanda, which I don't know whether you know this, <clears throat> but 
Barack Obama said it was the best basketball book he's ever read. Did you know that? <laughs> I didn't. And he that. played basketball in Hawaii, so he knew. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you didn't meet him. You never interviewed him in the in the uh, documentary. Why not? I know he died. Yeah, I but mean, he was still doing the documentary at the time when he was alive. He introduced you to his family, seven siblings, quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, the the thing with with Rodney was that I had known him. Rodney. Yeah. Rodney. Definitely Rodney. <laughs> Um, Did you call him Rodney? Yes. I had known him a long time. I had known him since, you know, since I was, I don't know, 10 or so. I had met him, I mean, maybe I'd met him early. I don't remember. But I'd known him a long time as I, you know, go into detail in the film. So for me, and he was a certain kind of person, certain kind of conversationalist, the conversations with him were not necessarily the most pressing things in my mind, to be honest with you. And that being said, if he had lived, do I think I would have talked to him more on camera? I do think I would have. I mean, as you see in the film, really I started the film shortly before he died, but I think that his death was a lot of what pushed me to move forward and have those conversations, as is as I explained in the film. He's, uh, he's quite, a, quite a well-known guy. He's, there's a movie about him, about him, you know that? Well, they made a movie out of Heaven is a Playground. Yeah, well, yeah. Heaven is a Playground is by yeah. Rodney Parker. Though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, that's quite a remark a remarkable background. Yeah, and you knew him as and, everybody talks about him as a family friend. How did you know him as yeah. a family friend? I knew him as a family. I mean, he was yeah, like a friend of my mom's. I mean, the playground in Heaven is a playground, Brooklyn, right in Brooklyn, New York, was Foster Park was where my mother and he met. My mother was the um, worked for the Parks Department in that park. So New York I, City Parks Department. Yeah, New York City Parks Department in Foster Park, which is the park that Heaven is a Playground is about. So, you Have know, you read it? I, a long time ago. A long time ago. Because you found out he was your father? You know, I don't remember if I even read it beforehand because, again, like this was almost like a big deal to my mom. She had worked, when this book came out, it was about Rodney, but it was also about a space that she had worked in shortly before then. So it wasn't just about, I mean, granted, he's a huge character in it, but in our household, it was like my mother had worked there and this book came out about this space where she had worked. I was just, I was just curious about, um, about how you deal with that going forward. I mean, you have, you have twins and you're going to have to explain your very complicated life to them. What are you going to tell them? I mean, I'm going to tell them the truth. Two twins. By the way, they're incredibly cute. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I'm going to tell them the truth. And I think, you know, when things are, how they come out and when it's age appropriate and what way, I can't tell you now. I'm pretty early in the parenting game. But. Well, they don't talk. They're 18 months old. Yeah, yeah. No, they don't speak. They're starting to speak one word here and there. Well, let me ask questions that they can't ask right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, it's complicated, but life is complicated, and I don't believe that we should shield children from the complications of life because all that will happen is they'll grow up to be adults who can't. So, what are you going to tell them? You're going to tell them that that your father, mm-hmm. not Rodney, is their grandfather. I'm going to tell them that Rodney was my biological father. But has your has your father accepted the the, twi- the, the twins as his grandchildren? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he plays with them? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, it's interesting. I don't think that my story and the dynamics of having multiple people in your life that you're close to is complicated. You know, my mother has a boyfriend who they're close to. My father is a relationship they'll have. My husband has 
um, his biological father, who he's close to, and his stepfather, who's his father, who raised him. You know, so in hey, that his side, name is Antonio have... Delgado. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a. Uh... Yeah, he's not Latino. <laughs> he's not Latino. No. He's definitely black from where? What's his uh, origin? Upstate New York, Albany area. You're listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper and WBGO-FM 88.3 and WBGO.org. Our guest is Lacey Schwartz, woman whose journey of race and religion is gaining attention all across America. It's not Lacey Delgado Schwartz, right? It's Lacey no, Schwartz. Lacey you know Schwartz. why I ask? Because I look at the New York Times and you're listed as uh, Mrs. Delgado. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, I haven't seen it. Well, it's here Recently, somewhere. Yeah. And no kidding. And I, I said, well, wait a minute. Is this wrong? Is the Times got it wrong? I use my husband's name sometimes in personal ways, but professionally, I always use Schwartz. Professionally? Yeah. So you're not Lacey Schwartz Delgado, in case anybody's listening. Because <laughs> I made the mistake of calling somebody a Montclair, and it was L. Schwartz. It turned out she never heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, no, Lacey Schwartz is how I go professionally, yeah. As we go on, there's going to be another part of your story, I assume, the next part of your story. You're going to tell, you're going to tell, uh, is there going to be a sequel to this? I'm not planning on there being a sequel, but I guess you can never say never. Um, I hope that there's many other, you know, chapters to my story. How many chapters are there? I don't know yet. What do you mean you don't know yet? I don't know how many. I mean, I'm. No, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking many, of all, uh, you, you went through, you're, you're smiling and people saw you. This is radio, so they can't tell. And, um, and you went through people people saying all kinds of things to you, and you and you were in a closet because you were you were shutting all everything everything they were telling you. You were just shutting it off, weren't you? Uh, at when I was growing up, yeah, I think I definitely had blinders on and kind of at Kingston High School, for example, going yeah. way way back, kids saying, yeah. "Who are you? And what are you?" And you said, "I'm Jewish. I'm white." And my father says that I'm related to a Sicilian way back. That's why I'm so dark. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, that wh- is what What happened. else did you tell him? You're you know, I think back. at the time, you know, part of it also is is how um, socially segregated the space that I grew up in was. You know, I was in all honors classes. And so there weren't many, you know, the, the interactions that you're referring to were things that had happened in the passing in the hallway. It wasn't like sitting there, you know, I sat with a certain group of people at the lunch table. You know, I was in classes where there weren't people of color in my honors classes. You know, there's quite a bit of social segregation. So it's amazing how much we can actually I noticed, actually I noticed you said that the basketball pe- people stayed with the basketball players yeah. and, and the cheerleaders stayed with the cheerleaders. And so you our, stayed with who? You know, I kind didn't of, get that. <laughs> I kind of hung with the, I would say, the honors students. Honestly, it's black yeah. and white. There weren't too many. There weren't too many black faces at uh, Kingston High School in no. upstate New York, were there? Well, there were black faces. They just weren't in the honors classes. I mean, that's what I'm talking about about the segregation that occurs, you know, socially, racially, in so many spaces. That it's amazing how much you can kind of isolate yourself from things. In the documentary, uh, I've noticed you appearing with a number of black faces. The Black Union. I guess you were. Were you, were you part of that? When I got to, you were more know, comfortable. Where, where were you more comfortable? When I at got, Georgetown. Yeah, when I got to Georgetown, I definitely started having a strong connection with the black community. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't only friends with black people, but I definitely had a strong connection. And one of the things that I really felt in that space was that I felt so comfortable with the diversity within the community and how they kind of saw and accepted my diversity. I always say, like, for instance, like, at Georgetown, many Jewish, white Jewish students would come up to me and say, so crazy that you're Jewish, but in the black community, I, 
people weren't saying, it's so crazy that you're Jewish. Now, does that mean that that would have happened in other spaces with the black community? Sure, absolutely. It's not that it's, you know, these things are absolute and it's all relative to where you are. But being in an institution of higher education, I really felt like the black community saw and understood my full diversity. And it was a space I felt very comfortable in. Comfortable. Uh, I took a look at the last part of your last part of the film. We saw that twice, actually three times. But I didn't notice the first time when I looked at it that he was a minister because the ceremony seemed to be a Jewish ceremony. What happened with my wedding is actually when we got engaged and decided to have a wedding, the ideal was we wanted to, I had grown up in a synagogue and had a long-term relationship with the rabbi who bought me. And um, my husband, although he's not particularly religious, had the same experience. His parents are long-term members of a church. He was close to the pastor of the church. And so we wanted both of these people to marry us, less to fully represent like doing an interfaith wedding, but more to make it having these two people that represented our upbringings and coming together. And my rabbi would not do an interfaith wedding. Why not? Um I don't could, know the answer could, to that. I'm not going to go ask. We don't have a time yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd have called him, but you know, tell yeah, me yeah. why. I mean, why didn't you know he? why? Why do some rabbis not want to do that? You know, that's a that's not the. I mean, I'm certainly not the one to answer that question, but I think we see that that is the case. That was the case far too frequently, in my opinion. But yeah, so he wouldn't do it um, because it was interface. Because I think he wouldn't. I think it was he d- wouldn't co. Um, do it like with somebody else. He might have done an interfaith wedding, I believe, but he wouldn't co-officiate. But yet, you the 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 dancing was all very very Jewish. The people jumping up and down and uh, yeah. So glass what ended up and... happening is, you know, the long story short of it is, at that point we didn't want to. You know, the pastor offered. He said, "Oh, I know some rabbis. I think would do it with me." I said, "You know, the whole point was about the personal relationships, and this was a man, this pastor, who I had already spent a." variety of holidays with because he's close friends with my in-laws and I thought you know we sat down and I said you know could you do this wedding actually the wedding was very much not an interfaith wedding it was actually a universalist wedding where we really kept it um, very expansive and so we do have some Jewish traditions when we sat down and looked at the Jewish traditions we found that a lot of them were really traditions less than they were religious practices and as long as they were things that my husband could relate to and connect to we included them so in a sense actually it's a universalist wedding with some jewish traditions that a a baptist preacher was willing to do for us and it was i think pretty amazing and beautiful how he embraced some he of these said jewish all, traditions. he said all the right things and here's a here's a question i'm sure that everybody's asking you how are you going to raise your children <laughs> everybody asks. <laughs> you're waiting right <laughs> Were they um, by bar mitzvah? Have they been, has they had a? Um, have they been baptized? No, no, they have not been baptized. Um, we are planning on raising them Jewish. I'm Jewish. We look at them as Jewish, but also to raise them to know who they are totally and completely. As I said before, my husband isn't particularly religious, but my in-laws are, and so to raise them to understand where they come from. And for me personally, I don't think that that's confusing. Uh, we're not planning on baptizing them. Uh, whether or not they'll have a bar mitzvah or not is something I can't answer right now. What do you think? You, well, you say your last name is Schwartz, and you like that because it means black in German. Yeah. You know, I think with them being bar mitzvah, I have to see, are we going to be a part of a community that we connect into that kind of tradition? As a family, will they feel connected to it? It's not something that I personally 
will put on them and say it is important to me alone that this happens for you. What is what does Antonio Delgado want, your husband? I think Antonio and I want the same things, which is to raise our kids to know who they are on both sides of who of their families and to understand who they are completely and totally and embrace that. Lacey Schwartz, it seems that your very personal journey still has ways to go. Toronto Wolper is the senior producer of our program, and Doug Doyle is executive producer, and Conrad Sanguinetti is our engineer. Gabriel Gerwitz is our internet associate. If you want to hear any of the other audio biographies, all you have to do is uh, go to Conversations with Alan Wolper. There's more than 85 conversations to choose from. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Wolper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation.